You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi there. Welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. My guest today is Victoria Sai. Vicky is the founder and CEO of Tatcha, a luxury skincare line. She started the business back in 2009 and it's grown to become incredibly popular around the world with a celebrity following. I spoke to Vicky about being an entrepreneur, of course, and she has a really interesting backstory about quitting her corporate job and learning skincare rituals from geishas in Japan. You'll hear all about that in the podcast. But personally, I also wanted to speak to Vicky about being Asian American. She was a guest at the Bloomberg Equality Summit in March, where we addressed the recent spike in hate crimes and growing intolerance towards the Asian American community. And Vicky's words stayed with me. I, I can pin it personally to the moment that Trump said Kung Flu and started calling it the China virus. Uh, I didn't leave my house um, for three months, not even to the grocery store, out of fear that the shape of my eyes would make me a target. My 11-year-old daughter um, came home three times from school crying this year because the children in her class were saying that they hope that the virus goes back to China and kills every single one of the Chinese people. When I reported it after the third time to the administration of her school, I did not get a single response. We feel invisible. When I spoke to Vicky for this podcast, I picked up the conversation with this as a starting point. You spoke to us at the Bloomberg Equality Summit in March, and you said at that time, the Asian American community feels invisible. Can you explain that? I, I can speak from my own experience, but I've heard it echoed in others as well, is we have all known that we weren't welcomed with open arms into this country. Um, the historical immigration laws point to that. And so... I think it's a combination of our upbringing and then the outcome of the historical context. So in my upbringing, I was always reminded to work hard, keep my head down and stay quiet, stay out of trouble. And then when you add on the historical context, we tend not to exist very much in public discourse, in the media, or when we need support because we're either perceived as not needing support or not vocal enough to get the support. So I do think invisibility has been one of the issues that wraps around the entire Asian American diaspora and experience. At a personal level, it has made me, of course, it's you know shaken my sense of safety, but it's also made me 
deeply, deeply, deeply empathetic to all marginalized communities in the U.S. that have to fear for their safety every day, whether it's the Black community, the Latinx community, the immigrant community, the transgender community. I think it's more than anything, it's made me feel empathy. As an individual, I can tell you that the moment that Trump started calling it the Kung Flu and the China virus, we immediately started looking at whether we should get our Taiwanese passports going because I'm Taiwanese American, because we didn't know if we'd need to run. In the Bay Area, where I've been for the last 12 years, where I raised my daughter, there are reminders of the Japanese internment everywhere. Sometimes we still wonder under the wrong administration if we could be swept up into camps. That feels still very present and and possible, um, or it did under the last administration for, for me and my family. And then as an Asian American female CEO with many Asian American female employees and customers, I fear for their safety and their well-being throughout this process as well. So my protective mechanisms, the the mother CEO in me has definitely come out to make sure I can do what I, I, I can to protect people. This has got to be so hard because you've lived in the States pretty much all your life. You're Asian American and they're both very strong, big parts of your identity, right? The Asian side plus the American side. Yes, yes. I was born in the U.S. My parents were first-generation immigrants from Taiwan. Grew up with one foot in the U.S. and one foot in Asia throughout my childhood, my professional career, and then now with a company that I run. I split my my life between two worlds. It's interesting because when I was growing up, we never really saw Asian faces in media. There was Connie Chung and yeah. and Long Duck Dong, right? There's those are the two that I can honestly name. Bruce Lee. Those are three. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and you you never saw us in advertising. You never saw us in popular media. Now you do see us um, in advertising, at least. And it's because they want um, the all the wonderful Chinese money that's coming out of China right now. And if you walk down yeah. Madison Avenue, whether it's Tiffany's or, or any of the luxury stores, come Chinese New Year, suddenly there's a Chinese New Year theme and you see Chinese models. So um, it's very clear that businesses are are coveting um, the Chinese money. And they also have a number of Asian American employees. We, we make up, I understand, 20% of the middle ranks of um, the corporate world. But when it comes to issues that impact our, our safety and our well-being, I've seen a lot of um, questions being asked, you know, what can we do? But I'm not sure that there's been a movement towards action yet. And so that's why I think it's important to keep this topic going. It's finally become part of the national conversation. Thanks to the media, I think. And this is where the media has really come in, whether it's Bloomberg or CNN, you know, places really starting to cover the stories and not let it become just part of the invisibility issue. And now your own business is heavily inspired by Asia. You run a fabulous uh, skincare beauty company, and it's called Tacha. And of course, the inspiration is a geisha in Japan. So tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind Tacha. Sure. Uh, When I grew up in the U.S., my mother actually um, had her own beauty store, but it sold, you know, she sold Dior and Chanel and, and, um, you know, these fancy Western brands. And I thought they were so lovely. Um, But at home, we made our own preparations uh, based on Eastern medicine. And I thought that those were not lovely. And then um, a couple decades later, I gave myself acute dermatitis. So my entire face had been bleeding and blistering and scaling for three years, including my lips and my eyelids. 
And the only thing I could use to keep it under control was um, oral and topical steroids and antibiotics daily, which is not something that you want to be on long-term. At the same time, I was pregnant with my daughter and I wanted to get off of all of those things. But then I thought, what am I going to do about my skin? I had also worked at a startup in the Bay Area with the scientists from Berkeley and learned about the sustainability issues, the environmental health and social impact issues around the beauty industry and personal care industry. Those things, those two things together made me start to realize there's a real problem here because my dermatitis wasn't, it was contact dermatitis. It was things that I put on that changed the the fundamental health of my skin, the barrier function of my skin. And I ended up leaving the rat race of corporate life and then, you know, VC backed startup life, which is frankly very similar to corporate life. And I started traveling to find myself. I was pregnant at the time with my daughter. And I think I just wanted to know that there was still beauty and goodness and magic in the world. And I ended up in Japan, even though I'm not Japanese. And I ended up studying which is completely crazy with Geisha. Now, over a decade later, I've studied with about 15 of them. And um, as part of, of what they do, I got to learn about their skincare rituals, which are beautiful and pure and the opposite of what we do. They start their uh, ritual with um, oil. They wash their face with oil and then they uh, polish it like, um, like a jewel with rice powder. Then they use an essence, which isn't very common in the Western world. And then they finish with um, a beautiful, light, nourishing moisturizer. But it's very, very different than what we grew up with in the Western world. I used it and it healed my skin. But beyond that, there was a philosophy of well-being um, and also a philosophy around aging and beauty that I found to be so beautiful, truly. And I felt like I needed that in my life. And there might be other people in the modern world who wanted that that approach to well-being in their life. And so I created Tatcha just to share these things that I continue to learn on my journeys. And when you went to Japan and you spent time with the geishas, they were happy to welcome you in. I mean, you were a stranger to them, right? But they shared their secrets. That's that's interesting. It is because normally they don't and they had no reason. That's what I've heard. Yeah, they had no reason to let me in. I think they were curious about me. <laughs> I, and I think they knew that it was coming from a very personal place of curiosity and, and hope. And they were incredible women. And I was interested in them, not just for their beauty rituals and their artistry, but also um, for their history of entrepreneurialism. They could be considered some of you know, Japan's first female entrepreneurs. And so we could just connected it at many different levels. What does Tatcha mean? Tatcha is short for Tatehana, which is the beauty of a single standing flower in Japan. If you've ever seen Ikibana, when you see that beautiful, but very simple, but it invites you to see the beauty of, of nature, the inherent beauty in something when you strip away all the excess. So you were in the corporate world before. And, you know, what made you say one day, this is not for me? It takes guts, right? I'm, I'm going to give the real answer. Now, it's not something I would have said 12 years ago, but in the context of everything now, I started out on the trading floor, um, first at Merrill Lynch and then at a, um, like a hedge fund. And while I found the intellectual part of derivatives trading very interesting, I found the environment to be truly toxic and my body was constantly touched. That was in my 20s. Then I went to business school. So I went to Harvard and that was, you know, a, a fine experience and made a switch to uh, marketing, the corporate world, 
because I just thought I'm not going back to that environment. In the corporate world, I found the, the work intellectually interesting and stimulating as well. But what I found was that instead of my my body being taken advantage of, I, I felt that my mind was taken advantage of. And I would always work hard and over-deliver and you know, be a good corporate soldier and be quiet. And I always got these mediocre ratings. And whenever I did, I would, I would ask to, you know, understand what my growth areas were, what my opportunity areas were. And on the, all the hard skills and the delivery, it was always exceptional. And then on the soft skills, the, but the stuff that they couldn't quite put their finger on just seems like I, I lacked leadership potential somehow. And at the time I thought, wow, how am I lacking? How am I going to find happiness and success in my career? Cause I keep working harder and I keep trying different things, but nothing quite fits. And the one exception was Howard Schultz it was when I worked at Starbucks. I had, um, I had killed myself to, to do a really good job to launch their consumer products business in China. I remember breaking my arm one day, my hand was literally hanging off. No gosh. I got a cast on and I went back on a business trip 48 hours later and just got it done. And I remember my boss gave me this meets expectations rating and it was always the same thing where I was like, can you go tell me where I can grow? And that's just something that they couldn't quite put their finger on. The only person who ever bucked that trend was Howard Schultz. And he saw me present my work. I guess he found it to be remarkable. And then he had me present it to his board of directors um, and then when one of his board of directors couldn't make it, he made had me call him on the phone and do the presentation. And then when I resigned and I left the company, Howard actually called my cell phone and said, get back in here and pulled me in and said, why would you leave? And, you know, what opportunity do you want? And he was the first person in my career who made me believe that maybe, maybe I'm capable of something. And then eventually he was the one who encouraged me to start my own company and, and give it a go. So I'm so grateful to him. Um, and that's part of how I ended up becoming an entrepreneur. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. But I want to go back to what you said about uh, being on the trading floor in your 20s and your body being touched and just how, how, basically how horrible that must have felt. 
but you're talking about it now and you haven't talked about it no. before and it's it's really important because i find this stuff has happened for generations right so yes there's a vocabulary now but are things really changing yeah i'm just curious about what makes you have the courage to talk about it now it's two things i think one is i i admit and it's this is so sad to say i took for granted that it was normal when it happened because it was so pervasive yeah. that you just thought it was normal and looking back that that was crazy that was weird um but at the time it was it was so normal it was wrong and then now yeah. 20 years later i have an 11 year old daughter and um i have a majority of female employees who are young and they're they're hopeful for what they can accomplish in their careers and i think if women like me who have the safety of being able to tell the truth because i don't rely on anybody now for my career and i ha don't have to rely on anybody else for my my safety if people like me don't speak up and say what happens and make sure that it's out in the public and and we make changes and policy changes against it then my employees are going to go through it my daughter's going to go through it and at what point does it change yeah because the cycle yeah the cycle doesn't break the cycle will never break you speak about it and this is where again where invisibility is the issue is if you can't fix it unless you talk about it you don't talk about it unless someone starts to make it visible um but i'm friendly with a number of women who spent their careers on wall street some you know decades we all experience the same thing and it never occurred to them to to really say anything about it either and for some of them it's too triggering to talk about even now and so they just won't even now yeah and being a mom also and being a mom to a daughter it does change your thinking it somehow gives you more courage isn't it, it you have to have courage because if we don't change the world for our children who's going to nobody else is coming to save us <laughs> Well, you're passionate about equality. I know that, and you're a huge supporter of Room to Read, which is the incredible organization that supports literacy for children around the world. And when you launched Tacha, you decided to donate a part of your income, part of Tacha's revenues, to Room to Read, and that also meant you went without a salary for nine years. Yes, so so did my partner, to his credit, my, <laughs> my business partner. But yes, <laughs> we um. we were both ex corporate people we both had done the business school thing and i think we were both looking for meaning and purpose in our work and we knew that we could build a successful company um i think we felt pretty confident about that but we wanted it to stand for so much more and we wanted the hours of our life to go towards something more than just a commercial enterprise just making money and so we decided early on that we wanted it to be a purpose driven company and if we were going to participate in an industry that has historically done so much damage to women's sense of self through appearance um then we would proactively take a role in fixing that and so we believe that beauty begins in the heart and the mind and we will put our money where our mouth is and room treat they believe in world change through children's education they have a special fund for girls and it's not just about material support but it's also about mentoring and teaching them life skills rights over their body things that all women still you know have have to know about and deal with it started off with every full size purchase once day of school 
then we change it to every single purchase of any size helps to fund girls' education. And we're very honored that um, our customers have funded 5 million days of school for these incredible girls around Southeast Asia and Africa because of our partnership with Room to Read. And uh, we're looking forward to the, bringing that program to the U.S. too, because the disparity and the need is very real. You know, Vicky, you founded Tatcha in 2009, and that's before purpose became a buzzword. It's become a buzzword over the last couple of years, right? There's a lot of conversation about balancing purpose with profit, etc. But 2009, we weren't talking about purpose the same way as we are now. So that makes me wonder, what made you so committed to purpose? Why was purpose so important to you? Where does that come from? Oh, I think it's two things. Uh, intellectually, um, so I studied economics in college, but if you're familiar with the concept of externalities, it's these unintended negative consequences of our commercial actions. Every single business creates externalities, um, whether it's to the environment, the community, there's always an outcome that's not paid for. And so I think that every single business has a responsibility to go above and beyond just the bottom line because we all create externalities. Um, and now I, I'm grateful that most companies are starting to think about sustainability from a, a very holistic perspective, impact communities, employees, uh, environment, all the way around. So we're getting there as a, uh, as a business. That's on the, just the intellectual side. On the personal side, I had left the corporate world and, and left the startup world to look for meaning in, in my career because one of the very first things that happened when I started off uh, in the business world was I was at in the, one of the World Financial Centers, um, which was connected to the World Trade Center complex on 9-11. And so we were down there and my husband was down there. My husband got sick after that for three years with an autoimmune disease. And we were 21 at the time when that happened, 21, 22. And so um, I think, you know, just like the pandemic, these these moments are very clarifying. And it helped me realize at that age that if I'm going to spend the waking hours of my life working, then I need my work to have meaning. And for me, I don't get meaning from titles. I don't get meaning from money. Those, those have never been motivating factors for me, for better or for worse, but impact has. And I think a lot about what kind of impact I can have in the world in whatever amount of time I'm meant to be on this planet. And so if you can do that through your work, how efficient. <laughs> Absolutely. But is this something that, um, that comes from your parents or the way you were brought up? just to believe or to want to make impact, you know, to make a difference. I th it, it's certainly part of my family's value system, but um, a lot of it also came from my time in Japan. There's this concept of ikigai, which is the sort of the intersectionality of, of purpose and, and how you spend the moments of your waking life. I think the best translation of, of ikigai is, is personal purpose, like your life's purpose. And so to me, um, I, I believe in the concept of a life's work and that you could apply how you spend the waking hours of your life to bringing purpose and joy to your own life as a human being. And that's, that's something that's interesting about Japanese business culture is they do believe in a life's work and they take so much pride in what they do, whether you're a taxi driver, a business person, a chef, um, their work is, is part of their identity in the most beautiful, healthy way. And that's why sometimes the employees will stay with companies through a lifetime. Whereas I think in the Western world, um, work can be a little bit more of like a gig. 
or something that's very transactional to get the next title, to get the next dollar. And I don't want to put a value on either one of those, but when I look at some of the people that I admire in Japan and what they've done with their lives, that idea of a life's work and purpose, I think is a very interesting one. So you founded Tatcha, you started supporting Room to Read. Tatcha has grown and grown and got a you know a huge celebrity fan following. Meghan Markle is a fan of your products, Kim Kardashian. We've talked about your products. That's got to feel good. Those are all amazing women that I'm honored to take care of. But we think of every single one of our clients exactly the same way. Um, we are mm. madly, deeply passionately obsessed and in love with our clients. Um, and everybody is somebody's best friend, somebody's mother, somebody's sister, somebody's brother. Yeah. So we just, we love our clients. They get me out of bed every day. So as Tatcha grew, then came the decision whether to sell the company or not, and you sold it to Unilever. Was that a difficult decision? Because I understand from a business point of view, it's probably a good decision to, to let it scale but it's your baby. You founded it. So was that a hard decision? There's always a a moment, I think, as an entrepreneur, when you see what you've created sort of launch out into the world. At some point, it's not yours anymore. My daughter's only 11, so I haven't seen her get married yet. But I think that's kind of a little <laughs> bit like what you feel like when they get married, like you're happy for them, but they're yeah. not they're not yours as much anymore. But And yet they are because they'll always be yours. Of course, watching my company grow up, there's been moments like a mother of, oh, remember when it was little, but it's been a wonderful decision. It's the first time in my life that I've had a female um, boss and it's been the most empowering, amazing experience. Um, And I picked Unilever because they're a purpose-driven company. And the number one thing that they said that they would do was protect the purpose. I felt that by becoming part of a larger group, we can start focusing on long-term growth instead of having to be focused on the short term so much, which is what you do have to do when you're an independent company, particularly if you're fundraising, because you have to keep up a certain amount of growth rate. And it's fine for the first decade, but I think at some point you want to you really settle into a level of organic growth that's, that, while healthy, is, is really about building something to last. And then when you sold it to Unilever, did you sort of take a backseat, but then you came back to be CEO? Again, something I haven't spoken about um, too much yet. It's something I'm just starting to speak about now, but I think it goes back to your questions about being an Asian American female in business. The year prior to selling to Unilever, I had been in my ninth year as CEO of the company. I brought in a private equity firm for growth capital, um, which we ended up not needing. And then we sold the company... I think just a smidge over a year later. And so it was sort of this financial transaction in between that we didn't need to do, but we did. As part of that, you know, we had a board and there um, were different operating partners in the private equity company who were meant to help assess and see how we could continue to grow and scale our operations. And there was this one operating partner who I spent, you know, very little time with. And then he made a recommendation that the founding team stepped down myself included. When I asked him what information he had received to make him feel like this was the right way to go, um, because our our track record, you know, a decade-long track record of financial success is there, we're meaningful in our industry, 
We had just gotten 360s back because we work with organizational development consultants to make sure that we're scaling as leaders with the company. My scores were on the top of the chart. And so I, I just said, was there anything that you learned that made you think that we're not capable? Yeah. And the only thing he said was that if your ego is so big that you're willing to hurt the company to stay in seat as CEO, then we can have that conversation. And um, it felt like a threat. Yeah. This is reminding me of the time uh, after business school when you went into the corporate world and they wouldn't give you the top marks, but no one ever explained why. why? It was it was a repeat of it. And so I ended up, you know, not I don't want to be an ego-driven CEO. I wouldn't want that. So I stepped down and he led the hiring of of uh, a new executive leadership team who looked the part and you can imagine what that looked like. What did that look like? Middle-aged French male. And so um you know what without getting into details a year and a half Two years later, I was asked to come back as CEO and no founder no founder comes back a second time because it went well when you step down. So I'll leave it at that. But um, yeah, and next thing you know, my husband and I find ourselves running the company again and, um, and leading somewhat of a turnaround effort in the middle of COVID. And again, I'm speaking of it publicly for the first time because I, I didn't tell the truth about why I came back for the first few months. Um, because I thought I am enabling this kind of behavior by going along with it and by covering for it. And I don't believe that if I was male or white, that I would have been asked to step down. And here I am <laughs> cleaning up the pieces. <laughs> Luckily, my company is very strong and we have the most amazing support from Unilever. And we turned it around really quickly and we are, you know, taking off again. But, um, you know, I, I do sit and I ask myself, Vicki, why did you, Yeah. why did you yeah. listen again? Why did you do that? Wow. It just feels like it's been such an emotional roller coaster. in addition to, of course, just uh, the business side of things. I mean, this is, this feels like it's been an emotional couple of years. I think the good thing about stepping away from day-to-day operating responsibilities for two years is that I got to spend a lot of time understanding um, what the company meant to me, developing a new vision for the company that's future fit post-COVID, and doing a lot of introspection of myself in terms of who I am and what kind of leader I want to be. And so this time when I showed up as CEO again, what I can say is that those two years made a, a real difference. And I am showing up as a different person and a different leader. And I, I welcome it as a growth opportunity that I'm grateful for. How so? How are you showing up as a different leader? What's different? The first time around when we were independent and we were entrepreneurs, it was just about trying to infuse the company with your vision and your energy and to survive the ups and downs of being a startup. The two years when I stepped away, the, the headcount doubled and the growth rate halved. And the complexity, I, I can't even put a number on it. <laughs> it's just complexity <laughs> in a multiple tenfold. And, um, and so now my job is to simplify, but then we're doing it in the context of COVID where we're trying to learn how to work efficiently and be an agile organization. 
completely virtually, half the people we've never met. And our industry is going through warp speed change because of the fact that the internet has changed the way that we consume and experience um, all consumer products and beauty is no different. So the industry is going through transformation. Um, The people in my company are going through personal transformation. And therefore the company, the context that we create and, and the energy that I bring to the situation as a leader all these pieces matter. It's like an alchemy that's happening. And so I'm grateful that I'm a mom in this particular case. I'm grateful that I've had uh, a decade of experience with this particular company so that I can be very choiceful about how I show up every day. What is the most important quality a CEO needs to have, especially as we emerge out of the pandemic? I think there's two. For the business, you need vision. We we have to be able to see around corners and imagine a new future for all of us, our customers, our products, how we can be of best service to them. So you have to have a vision. And then I think the other thing is that you have to have empathy. People want to be able to be human again and to bring their full selves um, to their work versus having to pretend to be one thing during the day and then be another thing at night. And so I think leaders with emotional intelligence and empathy will win in the future. Because if you treat people like a cog in a wheel, they can just go work somewhere else now. They don't have to work for you. Yeah, absolutely. And you said that your husband and you are running the company? Yes. So I run sort of the front end, um, sales, the marketing, CEO stuff. And then he's really running the back end operations technology. (laughs) We've always divided and conquered that way. (laughs) (laughs) What's that like though, to work with your husband? Do you, what if you don't see eye to eye? (laughs) I mean, the good news is we're super clear about who makes the call. Um, there can only be one CEO, so there's no question (laughs) about that. I do think that being, (laughs) (laughs) I do think that being in quarantine together and being parents together and running a company together, um, there's some, there's, there's a lot of togetherness, I don't mind it. Sometimes I can't find him. He might be hiding, but we get through it. And Vicky, this podcast, as you know, is called Out of Office. Yes. So I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite thing to do when you're out of the office? I meditate a lot um, to try to keep my mind and my heart clear. Um. I go out in nature as much as I can. I find it very, very healing, especially these last two years. And um, reading. I think reading books is just my favorite way of escaping it all and also feeding my heart and my mind. What are you reading at the moment? Um, Let's see. On my nightstand right now is a book by um, Alif Shafak called 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World, which was shortlisted for the 2019 Booker Prize. Fantastic book. (laughs) Great. I will take that as a book recommendation. (laughs) Vicky, thank you so much for your time. Stay well. And I hope Tacha continues to grow and grow and grow. That was my conversation with Vicky Sai, founder and CEO of Tacha. I loved speaking with her. I found her to be honest, open, and so inspiring, and I hope you enjoyed listening in. I would love to hear from you. Do message me. I'm on Twitter, and my handle is at thisismalika. You can check out other episodes of Out of Office. Please do. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Bloomberg Terminal, and Bloomberg.com. 
I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Out of Office. Till then, stay well. And as always, thank you for listening. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.